Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Spooky Ripped Mom. My name is Peyton Kennedy, and before we dive into part two, um, I just wanted to do like a PSA. Um, I know that last the last part, I was kind of like, there's corruption with these cops. I still 120,000% believe that there's corruption, especially after re-watching some of the episodes and tweaking some things. Because, fun fact, somehow I managed to lose like three or four pages of notes, so I had to re-watch some episodes. Uh, I still 120,000% believe that there was corruption in this police force. Um, and one main thing that I just want to point out is if there was any ounce of props to give these police officers and FBI agents, I would. But there is none. So they get no props. So I don't want anyone to DM me and be like, hey, why are you bashing them? They deserve to be bashed. They were terrible, awful people. And I think that they there's injustice there. And I am really glad that they are reopening the case. They started to reopen it in 2019, and I'm glad the new police chief, who I will mention later on, is wanting to bring justice to everything that's happening because the original police and the original DA did not do that. And you will find out in this part. So let's get started. Okay, so I'm going to kind of go back and talk about Wayne Williams, his, like, growing up, how he was in college, and then, like, what he did up until this point, um, and then I'll go more into what happened after they got his, like, pulled him over, things like that. Also, if you hear any, like, cling clings or things like that, the dogs are in the room again, because if not, they'll bark at every little thing when they're downstairs, and that's really loud as well. So you may hear them playing. If they get too loud, I'll pause and tell them to like calm the horses. But we'll see. We'll see how this goes. So Wayne was born May 27th, 1958. I do believe that makes him a Gemini. Um, he was born in southwest Atlanta in Dixie Hills. His parents were Homer and Faye Williams. He was the only child. Um, and then other than a few things that I'm going to talk about, there really wasn't much about Wayne Williams, um, like his childhood, which is kind of weird to me considering how hard the prosecution goes for the fact that he had some sort of fixation on young boys. Um, so at 12 years old, Wayne had started up his own radio station broadcast radio broadcast station, maybe that's the wording, um, in his basement because he was very interested in radio and journalism. And his friends would describe him as nerdy, geeky, he was kind. Now, I said like his friends would describe him. They would, but he didn't have that very, like, very many friends. But he was also described by like adults in his life that he was very intelligent. Um, and so he started up his own broadcast station in his basement and it got so much coverage that, um, he was able to interview a man by the name of Andrew Young. Now, if you're like me and you're like, Peyton, who the heck is Andrew Young? Well, he was a democratic politician who started off as a pastor. And so he came on, he thought Wayne was super cool. He came on his show and they did an interview. Later on in life, he went to Douglas High School, and then in high school, 
this is kind of where the people describing him changed. Um, they used to describe him as nerdy, geeky, kind, which they would still describe him as nerdy, but they also described him as a liar, someone who made up stories and overdramatized his accomplishments. Which to me, it seems like since he's an only child, he does give it a lot of attention at home. He was spoiled rotten, people said. I think because he was spoiled rotten and he never really had to work for anything in his life, he was just trying to come up with things to give himself attention because he got so much attention already. Like, it wasn't like anyone wasn't, like, trying to fight for him. And I think that's what he wanted. I think he wanted people to praise him always. He ended up going to college at Georgia State University where he majored in psychology. He tried to start his own business in college. Um, this you know, he didn't have the funds for it. So his parents ended up taking out a loan for it and it failed, which then caused his parents to lose all of their savings and file for bankruptcy. Hold on, there's a jet. I'm telling you, when I started recording this, there was no jet. The jets, when I sat down and I was like, I'm gonna record an episode, the jets were not flying. I feel like they do this on purpose. So Wayne did become friends with um, local radio station crews. Why did I say it like that? He became friends with the local radio station crew. He tried a career as a pop music producer and manager while being a DJ and a freelance photographer. So kind of anything at that time that you could do in media, he tried to do. Um, he was known to roam the city. He would like to ride with local ambulance drivers. And later on, one ambulance driver does give a testimony about Wayne. Um... But basically, Wayne would have like, you know, one of those like police radios and he would listen to things around when things were happening. Um, but then he would just go to the local ambulance and be like, can I ride around with you guys? And they'd be like, yeah. So no matter what case he got during that time, they like he would tag along with them. He would offer young black men and kids auditions to be singers for bands in a small studio that he rented. He had his own band called Gemini that he started and managed, but he was not in the band Gemini. He even created his own talent shows, and he would say that um, he was a talent scout. In May 1976, he was arrested for unauthorized use of police equipment and impersonating a police officer. So he had a blue light in his car that he could turn on and it would look like a police siren. It just didn't make the noise. Um, and I think when they actually arrested him with it, he had like a police uniform on. Now, I told you guys in part one about the profile. And now we're going to find out how he fits the profile. So because he was black, he could go in and out of these neighborhoods unnoticed. So the FBI agent said he was single. He lived with his parents he went on these ambulance rides, so to them that means, you know, he chased ambulances, and he was conscious of the media because he was the media. He'd go to different, like, Kate, like, if there was an ambulance there that he didn't ride along with, but he heard over the radio, he'd go with, like, his camera stuff and basically, like, film it like he was the press type of deal. Um, so he was conscious of the media because he was the media. So now we are now, so now we are now, that. That was stupid. Um, so now we are to where he got pulled over. So he gets pulled over by Officer Spence for, um, you know, killing Nathaniel Cater. I want to say I am very, very sorry. 
I had, I do believe I said Nathaniel Carter in part one, and it's Nathaniel Cater. And that was not very respectful of me. And I do apologize because, again, his, his name is Nathaniel Cater. And if you're going to say the victims and talk about this, you need to get it right. So I am holding myself accountable to that. Um, so when he was pulled over, um, they were very much like, Where, what are you doing? It's like 3 a.m. Where are you going? And he said that he was on his way. He didn't want to be late to a client that he had later that day. Um, named Cheryl Johnson, and he was on his way to her apartment uh, because they had they had a meeting set up, and I believe the meeting wasn't set up until like nine or eleven a.m. and it was to three a.m. and he said he was on his way over there just because he didn't want to be late. Um, now whether or not he killed Nathaniel Cater, that kind of made me a little uncomfortable as a woman because he basically said he was just going to stay the night in her parking lot, like in her car. And that's just, that, that's weird to me. Anybody else? Like that made me uncomfy. Um, but Officer Spence had him get out. He searched his car because he was like, can I search? And he was like, yeah, because Wayne was like, I don't have anything in here. And in the glove compartment, they found a black glove. Now, Officer Spence put it on his passenger seat, but then he never put it back on his, like, in the glove compartment where he had found it. Because when, like, the police came um, to search the car as well, like, they brought in another group of police to search, it was just sitting out on his front seat. And so they were like, oh, you just have a, you just have black gloves sitting on your seat? Um... And he was like, no, they were my glove compartment. And then one of the other officers found a braided rope. Um, they said on like on the hump of his car. Now, in the interview on the documentary series, Wayne Williams says flat out that they found it on the ground. And the officer held it up and was like, oh, this would make an awesome ligature. And he was like you remember where you found that because that was not in my car that was on the ground so i don't know i don't know like i said these these officers are real fishy to me but they didn't have enough to hold him because there was no body like they they made him wait while a helicopter searched and they said zero on the ground so that that means they didn't find a body that day the gloves and the rope aren't enough to hold him and he wasn't doing anything besides driving on a bridge at 3 a.m. so they let him go at this point all the officers are saying that he they did not believe that he could be the killer the way that his demeanor was how like literally they said how nerdy he was they would not have assumed that it was him um until two days later Nathaniel Cater's body is washed up a mile from the bridge so now they're like, hmm. They also think that because he had the blue light still in his car, that he was acting as a police officer to gain the kid's trust. So now I had to go back and re-research. I can't remember if I already said this or not. But I had to go back and re-research because like three or four of my papers for notes were just missing and I 
know what I was going to say, but I wanted to make sure that like numbers, info, stories, quotes, things like that I had were 100% correct. So I rewatched some of these parts and um, I have it written down in my notes, police generated list of 3000. And I'm like, but what was the list's name? Like, why don't I write that down? Rewatching the episode, they never say. So what I'm assuming, and I could be wrong, but what I'm assuming is they had, like, they generated from their database of Georgia offenders. Um, and that's where they came up with this list of 3,000. So they had a list of 3,000 people, and they said, and the FBI agent made it very clear that they said that only criteria would be who's impersonated an officer. He made it very clear that race, gender, and age were not included in the criteria. Now he can say that. This is the same man that has made contradicting the contradicting statements that I said in part one about like, well, we said like, you know, we put in the profile that he was African-American, but we weren't ruling anyone out. Then why, why did you make it that specific? So he's, he's very much a man who... I wanted to punch through the TV multiple times because he didn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, so you can't trust him. In my personal opinion, you can't trust what he says. Um, Wayne, of course, was on the list because, like I said a few minutes ago, he was um, arrested for impersonating an officer. And at this point, when this came up and he had matched the profile, they did detain him. The FBI detained him and, in quotations, interviewed Wayne. So they had him take a polygraph and on all of the questions, there was no sign of deception. There was no like that he lied until two questions. And those were, did you kill Nathaniel Cater and did you dump his body in the river? Those had huge spikes, which means they showed deception. The polygrapher was actually showing Wayne. Like Wayne was like, oh, what, what are these big spikes? And he's like, oh, well, those are the ones that you showed deception. Um... And he's like, what questions were they? And he's like, oh, it's, you know, did you kill Nathaniel Cater? And did you dump his body in the river? And this is when Wayne said he knew he was a suspect. So the GBI found green fibers on the victim's clothing and were told that agents from D.C. would be coming. I think I said it earlier, but just in case, because I can't remember. Um, GBI stands for Georgia Bureau of Investigations. So it's the Georgia Bureau of Investigations lab that are running these tests. Um, they were also told that they had a suspect and that they needed his car and his house processed. Now, there's one man on the documentary series, and I didn't catch his name, but he pissed me off to the fucking max. Um, he went to the home and he had another guy who's not on the documentary go to the car and process the car. And when he, when this guy got to the house, he said there were news people everywhere already. So there were three detectives at the house and four FBI lab, like lab workers there already processing the house. So in the office, in a ceiling tile and like, you know, the ones that you can kind of push up, like kind of like what we have in school, um, the police found a slapjack. Now, if you're like, girl, what the heck is a slapjack? I didn't know either. I was really glad they said what it was in the documentary. So a slapjack is a leather flat device about 10 inches long with lead. And the officer said that you hitting someone in the head with that could easily kill them. Um, they also found a ton of photos and slides of young men 
and the GBI agent who makes no sense. If I say GBI agent, it's the same man. Just remember that. He's the only one on the interview. Um, thought that someone in the slide looked like one of the victims. And he said that Homer, uh, Wayne's dad, came out, saw that he had this photo, snatched it in quotations, and then the next day, neighbors saw Wayne and Homer burning photos. Now, whether or not that's true, like whether or not the photos have been planted there, because again, I don't trust this GBI lab person at all, um, and they were burning it because they were like, uh, no, that's weird that you just planted these, we're not going to let you. Or they were Wayne's photos from kids that he had, like, said he was a talent scout for. He was kind of, like, trying to produce. Um, and it just made him look suspicious. And so they were just burning him for that reason. I don't know. But they were burning photos. Now, the GBI labs had collected off the victim's clothes green fibers, like carpet fibers, curtain fibers, something like that, and dog hair. Um, and they did have a German Shepherd as well as green carpets. Now, where this comes into play is the, I think I get into it later, but just in case I don't, the green carpets that Wayne had that his, well, his parents had, came from a specific distribution, like, person, company, and it, like, in a certain state, like, there were not very many made, um, and it was in his, obviously in his house, and so that's where they were finding the victims. They also said that they had found German shepherd, fur, like, hair on the victim's clothing, like, that was the hair that, the dog hair that they had found, was specifically German Shepherd. Um, at this point, Will, Wayne, I almost called him William, Wayne called defense attorney Mary Welcome, and he said, and she quoted it, I think I need a lawyer, and I know from your reputation that you are fearless. So, Mary, Miss Mary Welcome, she is a, obviously a lawyer, but until this point, she never worked homicide. What she did was she was a lawyer who looked over like the laws and things like that. And she was actually closing down peep show houses that were in Atlanta, strip clubs, um, the Blue Fox, which was like a peep show house. Um, and people described her as a crusading city solicitor protecting the city. Um, but she said that she may have not worked homicide. She had never done a homicide case, but she knew how to gather a team. So she asked Tony Axum if um, he would come and join their team. Now, he uh, was the pretrial attorney, and he said that Wayne wanted the publicity and notoriety, and having Mary as his defense attorney gave him that. And so after Wayne went home from the police, like the, the police polygraph interview, he actually held a press conference, which did take place in his house. And he had two criterias. They couldn't use his name and they couldn't take pictures. But all the news people were waiting outside his house for him. And at this time, there was nothing, nothing. I, mean, I don't even think to this day there's anything like 29 missing, murdered, and children in one city. So, it's safe to assume that people knew that it was going to be him no matter what. Uh, one of the press 
like one of the press reporters asked Wayne how he thought, like his thoughts and feelings about the murders. And Wayne agreed that some might be connected, but some were, he said, were just out too late going to places they shouldn't. Apparently, though, he also handed out resumes and it had all sorts of lies. Like he said, he went flying, all sorts of things. It's insane. Um, now, Mary Wolcom said he'd always be around the crews following him for picks and questions. Like she said, he like dangled himself out there, like taunted them. Like at this point, he's loving basically the fame of this because I think he knew at this point in time that the police didn't have anything on him and he was innocent um, until, you know, well, at this point, agents are also having to follow him for his protection and make sure like families of the murdered victims, things like that aren't coming after him. And he definitely thinks that like they're, they have nothing on him until June 8th, 1981. When District Attorney Lewis Slayton decided that there wasn't enough evidence to charge Wayne. So now he knows, like, whether he did it or not, he's out of the clearing. So then June 19th, 11 days later, there was a meeting at the governor's mansion, which included the FBI in the U.S. Attorney's Office, the Georgia Attorney General, and the representatives of the task force for the missing and murdered children. And Lewis Slayton, oh my gosh, why was that so hard? Lewis Slayton, who is the DA of, you know, Atlanta, was there. And this meeting went on for seven hours. Okay, keep that in mind. George Bush, yes, former President George Bush, who was not president at this time, wanted state and local officials to all be in the same room. It is believed that this meeting was created to basically tell DA Lewis Layton that if he didn't bring charges up with Wayne Williams, that they would, like the U.S. attorneys would, because this was making the FBI look bad. And they knew that Wayne Williams was their ticket out of this embarrassment. It was the only lead they had that we know of. Slayton went ahead on Wayne's arrest um, and in an interview in front of the press said that outside politics didn't play a role in it, especially with the timing. Bullshit. All I gotta say. On June 21st, 1981, Father's Day, okay, police came, knocked on the door, um, Miss Faye Williams opened it up and saw who was and called out to Wayne saying she needed to see him. And at that point, Mary Wilcom was there as well because she got word that he was going to be arrested. And she's like, you know, they're going to arrest you now. You got to go with them. And he was like, okay. So now he was only, don't think anyone's prepared for this. He was only arrested for the strangulation and murder of Nathaniel Cater and the murder of Jimmy Payne, both adults. He was never, and to this day, has never been charged with any of the murders involving the 29 missing and murdered children. So now, we're going to court. We're going to trial, things like that. So, Mary Wilcom has to create her team. Tony Axum, I mentioned him earlier. 
um, was the first person that she had asked. He had 20 to 30 years in homicide cases. Or he has had 20 to 30 homicide cases. And then William Northrup volunteered. And basically, it's just he was nosy. He said in the documentary, the reason why he volunteered was because he wanted to know if the prosecution had anything on Wayne. Anything whatsoever. He wanted to be there and be a part of whether or not these 29 cases were going to get solved. He was just nosy. Um, which we respect someone who just tells the truth. He was just really upfront. And to be honest, he was one of the few people on there that I trusted. Um, so Mary had asked if Wayne needed anything when she went to visit him at one point in jail. And all he asked for was to see his the band members of Gemini. Um, and the boys even said that they were never afraid of him before and after his arrest. They have never been afraid of Wayne. Um, and Wayne genuinely was just concerned about how they were doing in school and if they had picked out uniforms for their upcoming concert that they had. Um, and then at this point, with Tony having so many like years under his belt, it kind of created a little riffraff with Mary um, because Mary was the lead defense attorney for Wayne. That was her client. And then she created the team. But she believed that Tony really wanted all of the control and wanted to call the shots on everything. Um, he thought that they, like, if they gave more time to the prosecution, then that would give them more time to tighten up their case. But Mary kind of wanted to slow things down, see if they could produce enough evidence to make the prosecution mess up. Um, and Wayne got tired of it. And Wayne was like, listen, neither of you are in control. I am. And at that point, Mary and Wayne sat down together and they decided that they were going to go to court without Tony. So now that Tony's been fired and in this documentary, he says that he's never seen anyone be able to play so like the same part in so many different ways than he has with Wayne. Um, so Joe Drolet was um, with the defense to make sure they had legal ground and his job was to make sure that the evidence was explained to the jury in the way that the jury would understand because this these are peers they don't have any legal background and if they do it's very minimal uh, or they are lawyers but like you have to think you're only as strong as your weakest link so they had to really make sure that the jury understood what the prosecution was bringing to the table, how the evidence linked with each other, um, and how the evidence linking with each other also pointed to Wayne Williams. So now that Tony's been fired, they need to fill someone's place. So Alvin Binder, who goes by Al, of Jackson, Mississippi, j like joined the defense team. And everyone, like the press was like, oh, are you going to like ask for a later trial? Like, are you going to ask for pushback? Things like that. And he said, no. That they're fully prepared because Tony was fired at the fired at the end of October of 1981, and now the trial is set for December 28th, 1981. Like it had already been scheduled back then. So press are like, "Are you out? Are you going to ask for like, you know, a little bit more time?" And he's like, "No, we're fully prepared." Um, so now the trial has started. They have allowed extra seats for press. Now, that means only 50 seats were available for spectators, and 300 people showed up to get one of those seats. That's, that's a lot. 
Now, the moms of the victims had seats that were, like, held for them. Um, and the mom said that once the press that were in there waiting realized that they were the victim's moms, they, like, had, like, they would not stop asking questions when they were trying to leave. Like, they hounded them. They said it was not, like, I mean, them losing their kid was not a great experience, but that was, like, not great either. Um, so one of the defense's goals was to show the jury how things would not have been able to happen up on the bridge. So they actually, by bus, took all 12 jurors and the judge and all of the lawyers and everything to the bridge. And um, they were trying to show that Wayne couldn't stop on the bridge physically. And then they also had brought up that Wayne was there to see Cheryl Johnson. But the prosecution, the defense, none of the FBI agents and none of the local police officers ever found a girl by the name of Cheryl. John, like Cheryl Johnson altogether. Like there's no record, like birth certificates, like housing records, nothing of a Cheryl Johnson. Um, so that kind of just dissolved what the defense was trying to say with Cheryl. Like, oh, but he wasn't dumping a body. He was going to visit Cheryl. There was no way for them to prove that. Um, so the defense's argument was that the bridge would have taken way too much time for Wayne. Um, and so the steps that they said he would have to take was Wayne would have had to drive onto the bridge, stopped, walk to, like, get out, walk to the trunk, pull the body out, drag it or carry it, toss it over the bridge, then come back to close the trunk, get back in the car, and drive away. Now, when I was reading this, I was like, well, he could have just closed the trunk before he threw the body over the bridge. But still, then it got me thinking, wouldn't the officers underneath the bridge heard if a door, like, one, him getting back into the car, and two, the trunk closing. Like, wouldn't they hear both of those doors closing? Because it's not, it's, I mean, shutting your car door is a little bit easier to make quiet, but not your trunk. Because you try to do it lightly and the thing pops back up. And this is the 1980s. We don't know how the trunks were. Like, wouldn't you be, like, wouldn't you have to be more gentle with it? If you, that's not what I meant to say. If you were more gentle with it, wouldn't it not close? Like, I feel like they're not that far away. Like, I feel like they would have heard the door closing and the trunk closing. Um, officers testified that they never saw Wayne physically stop the car. Um, they did say, though, however, that when they had looked up after hearing the splash, the headlights were moving. Um... There was a metal expansion joint. It's one of those things that, like, you know when you're driving over a bridge and then you run over it and it's like, clunk, 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 clunk. Um, so the defense also said that that sound would have alerted police officers into looking up when the car was driven over it. So the FBI came back and said that they had done tests. And in their tests, they said that cars going over five miles per hour would make that clinking noise. Which to them means Wayne had to coast on the bridge under five miles per hour to not make the clank. They also said that, you know, when they looked up, they did see the headlights were stopped. But then after the splash, the lights started to move. So now, Dr. Zaki gets called by the defense to testify. 
and he's going to testify that he couldn't determine if one of the victims had been murdered. Now, Nathaniel Cater had been in the water more than two days when he did the autopsy. He said that there was such extensive water damage, he had to be at least in there for a week, maybe 14 days. Um, Dr. Zaki put in the medical report for Jimmy Payne, and in quotations, had it not been for the other killings, I and all probably would have ruled the death an accidental drowning, end quote. When Jimmy was found, he was found in the floater's position, which is when you're face down and your arms are like above your head. And that is the natural position your body goes into when you drown. He had been in the water for a while. So long, he had what they call skin slippage. If you're like, one, that sounds disgusting. Two, what could skin slippage be? It is when the outside layer of the skin has been dissolved due to water. And he was also found in swim trunks. Dr. Zaki said he could not positively say Jimmy Payne was murdered when he entered the Chattahoochee River. During cross-examination, Al Binder, the defense lawyer, asked Dr. Zaki, in quotes, you cannot say that man was not alive at the time he entered the water, can you? And Dr. Zaki said, based on the autopsy, no. In fact... When the autopsy was first conducted by Dr. Zaki, he had said that cause of death was undetermined, and then it was changed to homicide. Do you want to know when it was changed to homicide? After Wayne Williams was arrested due to pressure from prosecutors. This became a huge argument for the defense. Now, Tony, former lawyer for Wayne, said, and quote, I've practiced law for over 40 years. That is the only case that I have a memory of where the autopsy was changed from undetermined to homicide. It is so rare, end quote. Prosecution wanted to add into evidence that would link Wayne to 10 of the Atlanta child killer murders, so the 29 missing and murdered, including a victim who originally wasn't even on the police special task force list. And those 10 are Alfred, um, Alfred Evans, Eric Middlebrooks, Charles Stevens, Luby Jeter, Terry Pugh, Patrick Baltazar, Joseph Jojo Bell, Larry Rogers, John Porter, and William Barrett. Now the judge for this trial is Judge Cooper, and he actually allowed the prosecution to add this into evidence. And you might be wondering, the last with Eileen Warnos, they were, you know, we talked about how they were allowed to add stuff in to base stuff off character, things like that. When they said that they were able to add in these 10 kids and one not even be on the special task force list, that means there wasn't enough evidence to link that one victim to the rest that's on the special task force list. So I was really surprised that Judge Cooper allowed this because just because they were adding this does not mean that he was going to get tried for those 10. It just means... These two murders he's getting tried for match up with these 10. So no justice is being done still for these 10 kids. It's like they're using them still as a pawn. And that pissed me off. Uh, so prosecution brought up that 18 of the victims had German Shepherd dog fur on them. That matched up, not identified, not a 100% match, just the fact that it was German Shepherd dog hair 
on them and Wayne had a German Shepherd, but it was never cross-examined. Like, they never looked at the two to see if they came from the same dog, like you can do with your hair. Um, 15 of the victims had the green carpet. Uh, the carpet was man-made by a specific factory and brand and only produced for a short amount of time. Um, it was only made for 820 rooms and they went out to 10 states, meaning that only 82 rooms in Georgia would have this green carpet. The defense went to say that the Chattahoochee River, like they went to the Chattahoochee River with two pillowcases and they ran them underwater. And they told the jury that when they lifted the pillowcases back up, there were hundreds of fibers, 35 total, and not matched any fibers that were on the victims. So the GBI lab agent made it very clear that the fibers didn't conclude Wayne was guilty, more to prove that the fibers connected to Wayne's environment. Prosecution had an eyewitness testimony saying that Wayne was gay, um, but he was bisexual and a virgin. And witness said that one time Wayne picked him up and started asking if he had sex and if it was with girls. And then Wayne reached over and grabbed his penis. And on the stand, the witness said, end quote, I can't forget his face. It's that man over there, Wayne Williams, end quote. Robert I. Henry claims he saw Wayne holding hands with Nathaniel Cater um, two days before he died. So many witnesses claim they saw Wayne with victims right before they were murdered, but Wayne claims he doesn't know any of the victims. So Ruth Warren was at a shopping center when she saw Luby talking to Wayne about if he could go with him or not. Helen Pugh, Terry's mom, said, and I quote, I'm not going to say he killed all of them, but he was in on it, end quote. Bobby Lee Toland um, was the most crucial witness for explaining why like any of this could happen. So Bobby was an ambulance driver and he testified that Wayne was actually racist. And he said um, that Wayne told him all poor kids should be killed. Wayne had asked, had I ever considered how many beep um, he could eliminate by killing one beep child. Um, the beeps are for a racial slur that I will not be saying. Um, so anytime I say beep, just know it is a racial slur. That's all you need to know. Okay, so now a woman who was friends with Wayne named uh, Sharon Blakely took the stand. And she said, and I quote, The game's got to end someday. If they get enough evidence on you, will you confess before you get hurt? And Wayne said yes. So Sharon is testifying that Wayne confided in her that he did kill these kids all of them, even the adults. And she said that she didn't want to be there and say that what she knew. She cried and said, in quotes, yeah, he did. I'm sorry. When being asked if she thought Wayne killed someone. So the prosecution rested. The defense planned on calling 70 witnesses, including Wayne. Mary Welcome, his lawyer, said that she did not recommend this, but he told her he wanted to tell his story. So Wayne denied knowing Nathaniel and Jimmy, even though witnesses saw him holding hands with Nathaniel two days before he died. So the prosecution's goal with Wayne on the stand was to keep him up on the stand as long as possible to get him stressed out because he wasn't showing emotion and he was being calm, which to Mary showed that he wasn't like 
not remorseful because, you know, he's claiming his innocence, but almost like he just didn't care that all these victims had passed away and that someone had killed them. Uh, the prosecution had a list of questions of things that Wayne really couldn't answer from day one that they asked again in day two. And finally, a question about the bridge kind of broke him and he got really heated over it. And his explanation for the bridges varies from story to story. Um, now, they didn't really go into what those stories were, but when he was done and the jury was about to go like go back to deliberate on his sentencing, they only deliberated for 11 hours. And they came back saying that Wayne was found guilty for two consecutive life sentences. So Mary Welcome was paid $5,000. And people now are speculating that the FBI had something to do with the conviction. Meaning people thought that maybe the FBI had gone in or had somehow tainted with the jury's thoughts. Um, the evidence apparently allowed the Georgia police to say 23 cases were solved, even though the prosecution only brought 10 as into evidence and he was never tried for any of the cases. But the police said that 23 cases were solved because he was in jail for only killing two people that may have not even been killed. Nathaniel Cater, I definitely think, was killed. But Jimmy Payne, that one's a little suspicious to me. Um, Lewis Slayton, the DA, um, in 1981, said he won't charge him, Wayne, with any other of the victims. Like, any of the 10 victims that were brought in onto the trial. Um, Erica Shields is now the Atlanta police chief for as of 2019. And she thought that the police in 1981 were negligent. That's the word. That's the word. And she said that she believed pressure was so extreme that they took it out and Wayne Williams was their out. Yusuf Bell's mom said that she didn't believe Wayne Williams killed anyone. And there's no answer on who killed and kidnapped the kids and the task force shut down. So there was no more investigation. They just believed that Wayne Williams did it. So, of course, Wayne wanted to file an appeal, and it took a year to get that appeal ready. In 1983, the appeal went to the Supreme Court, and it was the longest in appeals for court history. There were 33 points in error in the trial, and the number one witnesses, most of the key witnesses, created perjury in their testimony. Um, Davis and Ruth Warren had given descriptions scar-like lightning down the face when the encounter first happened in the trial she pointed to Wayne but Wayne never had a scar on his face you know who did have a scar on his face Don Sanders a member of the KKK but we will get into that in a moment I got a little ahead of myself but it's because it's like what the fuck um and by the way Don Sanders was white white um she pointed to Wayne who didn't have the scar, and she said, I never saw Wayne, but on her porch when she did an interview after that, she said, and I quote, I never saw Wayne Williams until court. She had never even seen Wayne Williams until court. Now, Robert Henry, he testified um, that he saw Wayne Williams holding hands with Nathaniel Cater, 
and he later recanted and said that police told him to positively identify Wayne. Now you might be thinking, hey Peyton, but what about Bobby Toland, the ambulance driver who said Wayne was racist? Wayne wasn't racist. Bobby Toland was racist. Um, he later said that he hated Wayne and he wanted the reward and testified under, he testified under a fake name. He had an arrest record and he was a member of the KKK. And the statement where he said Wayne used all the like racial slur words came from Bobby. Bobby said that, not Wayne. Now, this is where things get fucking interesting because before Wayne's arrest, the dog hair found on the victims that the GBI lab took from victims' clothing were said to be Siberian Husky, Norwegian Elk Hound, a Kegshan, and an Alaskan Malamute. So that means that they had white, that they were all white, which excluded all of their dogs. And Wayne had a German Shepherd with very little white hair. So all the white hair found on the victims. You're telling me it came from the little bit of Wayne's dog? That little patch that he had? That's it? So once he's a suspect, though, that's when the dog hair got changed to brown and white and only could come from a German Shepherd. The carpet from the Wellman Company was unique in quotations, but had only put forth partial records of sales and it was presented by the prosecute as hard facts. So they didn't get all the sales. That 820 rooms that it could have been sold to was only partial from the actual sales it did. It was a quarter of the sales that it did. So this green fiber, there could have been way more sales, meaning it could have been way more than 82 rooms in Georgia. Uh, so this like consistent became a problem term because fibers were consistent with the Wayne's home, meaning that he couldn't fully be excluded. It matched the carpet, so he couldn't be excluded, but there was nobody else being looked into about green carpets. Now, GBI Labs said he never, the agent there said he's never seen those fibers again. Not in any other case has he seen those fibers. So the Supreme Court has six months to say yes or no to his appeal, and it was denied. And Supreme Court George T. Smith said that they were going to reverse and overturn the conviction and give him a whole new trial because they all felt that there was more wrong with the original trial until they got a phone call. And I'm gonna leave you right there on a cliffhanger because we're past 45 minutes now and the last one was 45. Um, so we're gonna pick up with who was on that phone call and more into different conspiracies. Eventually we'll see that Wayne Williams does get to bring all of this up. Um, so I'm not going to make you guys wait though, because this is going to get posted on Wednesday and I'll have the second one get posted or the third part get posted on Thursday. So I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your week and I will talk to you later. Love you. Bye.